You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. As the uh, breakers roll in from the western Pacific here, I'm standing on the shores of Easter Island, facing off against some of these famed stone statues. Now, there are a couple of really interesting mysteries about Easter Island. I mean, you could ask, well, why did they build the statues? That seems to be fairly well understood. How they did that? Well, we'll talk about that later, but after all, you could just use stone tools and carve uh, stuff out of the volcanic rock here. It isn't all that hard. But those aren't the mysteries. The mysteries are more why did it suddenly stop? Which it did. Almost overnight, they stopped building these big monoliths. And then what happened to the Rapa Nui, the inhabitants? Well, they didn't entirely disappear. There are several thousand still living on the island today. But their culture changed. Everything changed. What happened? I'm Molly Bentley. He's Seth Shostak. And this is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. Society's rise and fall, and Easter Island is a celebrated example of that. Of course, we're often more interested in the fall. For one, it may contain clues about modern society's fate. So what are the cautionary tales embedded in these ancient societies, whether it's the 500-year flourishing of Easter Island or the 30-century preeminence of ancient Egypt? In this episode, scientists dig in with new archaeological tools and questions to shed light on life long ago and reveal that the end is not always what it seems. It's headed for trouble. wouldn't want to visit Easter Island. When I was signed up to be an astronomy lecturer on a cruise into the South Pacific, I was pretty darn excited to see that the first stop was this fly speck of land about the size of San Francisco. 
Now, it's mostly the tourists who call it Easter Island, and the natives call it Rapa Nui, and there's a lot to say about it, but understanding its remoteness is really key. I'll put it this way. If you want to fly to Easter Island from Chile, well, bring about five hours of reading material. This is a very isolated place. It's at one corner of Polynesia. You have Melanesia, you have Micronesia. Polynesia is encompassed by the triangle that extends essentially from Hawaii here to Easter Island and then back down to New Zealand. So it's a big swath of ocean. There are a lot of islands there. And I'm looking at the horizon here. It's just water, a bunch of gray clouds. But in fact, uh, you know, that horizon, <laughs> that, that hides a lot of stuff, of course, all of Asia, but uh, that's a long way away. For about 300,000 years, Easter Island had never seen a Homo sapiens. There were plants, some animals, nothing very big, certainly no people. But when the Polynesians did arrive, they kind of shut the door behind them. They didn't go back in the direction from which they came. They stayed there and they settled there. And so this is really, it's the why Easter Island is such a success story, because it shows that this incredible group of people were able to populate these and settle these incredibly isolated small islands in remote parts of the Pacific. That's my tour guide for the trip. Really nice guy who, like the Polynesians all those centuries ago, came to this remote patch of land in the Pacific and didn't leave. My name's James Grant Peterkin. I'm originally from Scotland, but due to my linguistic studies, I have been living on Easter Island now for the last 17 years. When did the Polynesians land on Easter Island? Is that known? Well, I mean, obviously, they very much, it's approximate dates at the moment, but we think sometime between about seven to 900 AD, this group of Polynesians discovered and then settled this diminutive island of, of Easter Island. I think for those who have read uh, Kantiki by Thor Heyerdahl, uh, they might wonder, well, why did the Polynesians stop here? If they could come 2,000 kilometers from the last island to make it this far, why not go another 2,000 kilometers and land on the coast of the Americas? Well, they did. And this is the point that very recent DNA studies and things like, you know, rat bones and things that archaeologists are looking at today have shown that the Polynesians did make it to South America. What they didn't do, though, is settle South America permanently. And so it gives the suggestion that their visits to South America were sporadic and they were short-lived when they did go and visit. They traded with the American Indians and then came back into Polynesia. Easter Island, of course, was uh, found by the Europeans in the early 1600s, I believe. No, later. So it was discovered on Easter Sunday, 1722, by the Dutch. And this is where the name Easter Island, obviously, is put to the island. But that was really, you know, I mean, it wasn't until for another 50 years that, that Europeans came along again. And so there were very isolated instances where Europeans would have any contact with the islanders. It wasn't really until the 19th century that there was any kind of constant contact with the outside world. So incredible isolation. The inhabitants, the Rapa Nui, developed their own culture. I enjoyed an evening of music and dance while I was on the island. But of course, the aspect of their culture that's best known are the distinctive artifacts that were key to their belief system. When I was driven around the island, I tried to picture what it was like for the Europeans to first find this place. I mean, it doesn't look all that remarkable. Large, empty spaces with a few trees here and there. 
two or three low dormant volcanoes that presumably are the backbone of the island. And then in the distance, I first saw a stone head, a giant sculpture, I don't know, 12 or 15 feet tall. All told, there are nearly a thousand stone heads here. They're called moai. You quickly grasp that this isn't just another nondescript patch of land punctuating the South Pacific. Something special, something remarkable has happened here. And facing me is the largest single collection of moai here on the island. Tongariki is the local name. And there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 of these uh, heads and torsos looking at me behind them, the Pacific. These were based on people that had actually existed on the island, at least that's what's believed. And uh, they were sort of the, uh, if you will, the, the spirits of these exceptional persons who, who merited having such a large head carved. And uh, they stand guard. And when this person died, the idea was to go to the quarry, carve a statue that represented this person, transport it back across the island, and erect it in such a way back in your home village that you had your ancestors looking over you, watching over you, if you like. And so it's a very human idea, I think. Their ancestors with mana. That's M-A-N-A -A and not the, the kind of mana you get from heaven. Exactly. So mana, this word that's incredibly important, wherever you go in, in Polynesia, one hears a lot even today about mana, you know, this idea of this spiritual power, this particular proximity that certain people had with the supernatural and with the gods. I'm standing on the eastern side of the island, and this is one of the uh, quarries that were used to produce the moai. Uh, there are a whole bunch of them sort of standing around. And of course, the reason that the quarry was here well, it's because one of the volcanic cones of three on this island is also next to me, the, the largest of these, and it provides the raw materials. These things are big. I mean, they, they weigh more than 10 tons each. So it's a head about, oh, I would say maybe 15, 20 feet tall. Uh, this guy, he has a red top knot. It looks like a hat, but in fact is representative of this fellow's hair. And the eyes uh, gazing uh, unblinking and apparently unconcerned inland. But perhaps he should have been concerned because things began to change on this remote patch of land where the Rapa Nui had lived for, I don't know, maybe 700 years. When the first outsiders, the Dutch, dropped anchor here on Easter Sunday in the year 1722, they noted the Moai, of course, and the Moai were upright and intact, sitting on their platforms. But by the time James Cook arrived about 50 years later, some of the statues had been toppled. In addition, and despite centuries of making the Moai, production of these statues of Rapa Nui ancestors had stopped. But why? My tour guide James explained what's known as the collapse theory. So when Cook comes in 1774, he seems to be the first person that mentions, he's only the third outsider to visit the island anyway, but he's the first of the three to mention the fact that he saw some of the statues having been thrown over. And so this is where we begin to understand that something must have happened to have caused this once mighty culture to have come crashing down, so to speak. So that's one of the big mysteries. I, I think that from the standpoint of a non-expert, the big two mysteries of Easter Island were why the statues, and secondly, why they suddenly stopped making them, and they, they stopped making them very quickly. Apparently, that was a, almost an abrupt stop. 
Yes, I think in terms of the reason behind the statues, I think today archaeologists would generally say that they have a much better idea than perhaps common knowledge would dictate and that this was a, a, a complex form of ancestor worship and therefore this was the main reason why all of these statues were, were carved and then transported around the island to their respective villages. But yes, in terms of what happened after that, what really caused this so-called collapse that we often talk about, this idea of the culture sort of collapsing on itself, then yes, you know, the, the jury is very much still out as to what caused it. Okay, so they had this, this ancestral worship for uh, on the order of 700 years or something, and it kept society together because they kept making these statues. Yeah, so it was actually a very effective way of, of maintaining this small society very much in order, you know, and very much all rowing in the same direction, if you like, because very hierarchical, as we expect with Polynesian uh, societies. And so the chiefs were commissioning more and more and bigger and bigger these statues. And so this kept this working class focused on this particular task in hand. And we think that it would be a sort of life's work if you were to participate in the carving of one moai or one platform during your lifetime. More or less, what was the population at that time? Well, this is again one of the big questions that people are asking today is how big did the population on Easter Island have to get to in order to cause this so-called collapse? And the numbers that are generally put out today are anywhere between 10 and 20,000 people. I think probably 12 to 14,000 is the numbers that from what I've read and, and people that I've spoken to I think that the slightly more learned numbers is about in that range. But it's certainly a lot of people for a small island. All right, so now the big question. Somewhere between when the Dutch were there in the beginning of the 18th century and Captain Cook was there in, the, I guess, the 1770s, they began to push the Moai over. Had they stopped production of the Moai? Well, yes, yeah, so it seems that prior to the arrival of the Dutch, production in the quarry had stopped. Before the Dutch? Before the Dutch, because they, the Dutch didn't get the impression that there was still an active belief system between the islanders that they met and the Moai that they saw standing around the island. Again, we're basing this on the visit of a few outsiders in a stay of no more than about a day on the island. And so it's, one has to be very careful, I think, with this information, but it's the best information that we've got. And the reason they, I mean, you know, obviously the export market wasn't large. I mean, why'd they stop making these things? Well, we don't know. I mean, something happened, obviously, in the society. And the most obvious assumption is that it went from this very peaceful, cooperative society to one in which suddenly they started fighting between tribes. One's own safety and the safety of one's own family suddenly came under risk. And so when things like that happen, when you get these shifts, the first thing that stops is any kind of religious output, such as carving moai, because you're not going to go to work and carve a moai if you're worried that back at home your own village is going to get attacked because the neighboring tribe likes the look of crops and things that you have and they don't. So I think something shifts in this very structured cooperative society and it becomes very much sort of looking after number one and one of survival. To what extent is the popular impression that the islanders simply ran through all the natural resources? I mean, they, they chopped down all the trees and, you know, they couldn't build boats to get off the island and, you know, the some of the natural resources being depleted meant that there obviously conflict could develop and so forth and so on. I mean, this is kind of a simplistic view. Is it based in any truth? Well, I think, I mean, you know, it's simplistic, but clearly, you know, I mean, it's, it's roughly along the right lines. I think we have to remember that the... You know, I mean, the Polynesians were incredibly advanced in their navigational skills, in their ability to settle new islands and things like that. And so it seems surprising that they would do all of this 
and then commit the very basic error of running out of resources and not basically getting the resource management completely wrong. But at the same time, they didn't have much of a history of having to manage resources because they were always able to move to neighboring islands in their history. And there was never this need necessarily to survive for long periods of time on the same island without being able to move to a neighboring island when things started to get a bit rocky. So try and describe to me around 1700 the situation on the island. Uh, a lot of the trees have been taken down and so forth and there are tensions developing. I mean, what, what a change? What was new for the, the next generation as it were born in 1700? So I think now you've got an island whose population is putting enormous pressure on the resources that are left on the island. You've got previous generations that have used the resources perhaps without considering future generations and planning necessarily for that. You've got moai that have been, in the last couple of hundred years, been produced in large numbers and all of the resources needed both to carve those moai, feed the people, transport the moai. And so I think that for the young people in about 1700, they're born into an era where you've gone from this very successful, stable society into one where suddenly they're not quite sure where the next meal's coming from. They're not quite sure if they're as safe as their parents or grandparents were when they were growing up. So it's a very interesting shift that takes place. James Grant Peterkin, thanks so very much for speaking with us. You're welcome. So we learn what events unfolded on Easter Island more than 200 years ago and that seem to have led to the demise of the traditional culture. It's a cautionary tale that's applicable today. Use resources wisely, don't cut down all the trees, and generally wage ecocide, because otherwise you will drive your people into armed conflict and your society will collapse. Yep, that was kind of the takeaway from my visit, you know. You can have all the stone statues you want, but if you don't pay attention to your own environment, you know, maybe it's not going to go well for you. So it sounded reasonable, but actually there's good reason to think that there's more to the story. Scientists have given Easter Island a second look, and so will we, but we're going to do it by way of a detour to where archaeologists are using new technology to look more closely at the rise and fall of that long-lived civilization on the Nile. You've heard the stories of the abuse of power, of wasted resources, of sacred cats, embalmed rulers, and a bunch of pointy buildings. But now we're going to get the wide-angle view of Egypt by going into space. Typically, we only have a few weeks or a month to do survey or mapping work. And so what the satellites do is they allow us to target entire sites to visit and map or specific parts of archaeological sites where we might want to excavate. Making space for satellites in archaeology, next. This episode is Headed for Trouble on Big Picture Science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, 
the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. We are doing some digging into archaeological sites and unearthing lessons from the past on Big Picture Science. And there's nothing that gives you the big picture of things quite like an orbiting perch. When you imagine an archaeologist at work, you might picture a scientist wearing a broad-brimmed hat, squatting over a patch of desiccated earth, carefully brushing dust from a tiny bit of bone. But by also taking advantage of the modern ability to zoom out, these time-traveling researchers see patterns that are unnoticed on the ground. From space, we have the advantage of both an aerial perspective, so we can see the relationships between archaeological sites and natural features, and also the satellites record information in different parts of the light spectrum, as in the near-middle and far-infrared, which we can't see with our naked eye. I am Sarah Parkak, and I am a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Speaking of hats, she wears another one, that of space archaeologist, surely one of the coolest titles in science. Dr. Parkak is excited by the ensemble of satellite technologies her team are now using to make exciting discoveries all over the world, even in some well-trod places. I'll give you the example of the site of Tanis, which of course everyone knows from Indiana Jones. It's, it was Egypt's capital around 3,000 years ago, 1,000 BC, for about 400 years. And it's an absolutely massive metropolis. Think New York City or Washington, D.C. And while archaeologists have been working there for over 100 years, they've never fully mapped or excavated the central city. And from very high-resolution satellite imagery, we've been able to do just that. You can see palaces and settlements and administrative buildings. And when you're walking over the central part of the site where the city is essentially buried, you can't see anything. It's just, you know, acres and acres and acres of silty soil, and you have no idea what you're walking over. The resolution of these eyes in the sky is about 11 inches, which means each individual pixel in the image is comparable to a license plate in size on the ground. Sarah Parkak explains how high-tech is changing one of the oldest sciences in her book, Archaeology from Space, How the Future Shapes the Past. One of the questions I get asked most often is how much is left to find in Egypt? And it's kind of, well, how long is a piece of string? But, you know, being an official member of Team Nerd, I decided that it would be worthwhile to try to do the math and figure out just how much we've excavated. So I looked at 
every known archaeological site in the Egyptian Delta. I looked at every peer-reviewed publication and monograph that had come out about those sites. And I estimated, with really generous room for error, the total area that Egyptologists have excavated in the last 150 years of every known site in the Delta. And according to my math, which, by the way, came out in a peer-reviewed publication and was not challenged, we've excavated less than one one-thousandth of one percent of the sites in the Egyptian Delta alone. So I feel very comfortable saying that we have discovered less than one percent of ancient Egypt. Less than one percent. That's that's amazing. Now the Delta, uh, you know, that's where Alexandria is, uh, I suppose, and so forth. It's not quite like I don't know Luxor, which is all desert, right? There, there's vegetation in the Delta. Does satellite imagery, I mean, does it run into trouble because there are all these trees there? Can you use something like LIDAR or something to penetrate the trees the way they do in Central America? Yes. So the delta is what I call a restricted landscape. So in ancient Egypt, there would have been seven branches of the Nile, and the settlements would have clustered along those ancient river branches. And what you have in Egypt are these multi-period mounds. In Arabic, they're known as tells. So think of essentially layers upon layers of sites, one on top of the other, almost like a cake flipped upside down. And over time, the occupations expand. So when you're looking for sites in the Delta, uh, the number one place to look, of course, is where the modern towns are. Because in so many places, the modern settlements are built on top of the ancient archaeological sites. So we're lucky in Egypt, for the most part, sites don't have the dense vegetation that you see, say, in a place like Guatemala or Cambodia. But we're hoping, you know, in future to be able to test some new technologies there for mapping. But for the most part, I would say in 99% of all instances, you can use the high-resolution satellite images to map sites there. Okay. So you're looking at the satellite imagery of of, of northern Egypt, the Delta, whatever, and you find something, oh, hey, that, that looks a little peculiar. You do that on what basis? What, what are you looking for? In archaeology, we go from the known to the unknown. So no matter where my team and I are looking in the world, whether it's Egypt or Peru or India, it doesn't matter where. The first thing we do before we even think about getting a hold of satellite imagery is we develop databases of all the known archaeological site types and features that we might find in a particular place. Then we determine what they're made from. Are they made from mud brick? Are they made from stone? Um, Of all the known examples, um, do we have complete examples of a city? Do we have partially excavated examples of a pyramid or a tomb? Because, of course, when you're looking at the imagery, you may see a rectangular feature, but it's one thing to say there's a rectangular feature. It's another thing to say, okay, I know based on the size, shape, and material, and the orientation, and the location of that feature that it is a late 6th dynasty noble's tomb. And that is the level of, of information that you can get out of seeing the satellite imagery before even excavation because you have so many known examples of whatever you're looking at. Listen, Sarah, I mean, if I were sitting next to you on a long flight and you told me that this is what you did for a living, you know, I would say, oh, well, those technologies are all pretty interesting and so forth. But, you know, what have we learned? I mean, have we, do we have some information about ancient Egypt? I mean, beyond details that, you know, would only interest an Egyptologist. Do we get some insight into what life was like back then or, you know, the, the courses of history? 
So the satellite imagery processing, that's only the first step. Um, You have to do something known as ground truthing. In other words, you have to go out on the ground and do actual confirmation of whatever you've seen from space. While satellite imagery is great, it doesn't always work. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And and then you've got to go and excavate what you found. Look at the pottery. Look at the material culture because that's where you can really gather all the nitty-gritty details that you need as an archaeologist to start putting these pieces together. So one specific example of a big satellite survey I did in the Egyptian Delta, looking at all the information, visiting the sites on the ground, collecting all the pottery information, I was able to see a significant drop in the number of settlements from the period of time known as the Old Kingdom, which is the period of time that that the Great Pyramids of Giza were built, into the First Intermediate Period, which is a period of time of kind of great chaos and instability. And I've been able to input that information into a, a big settlement model to suggest that the end of Egypt's Great Pyramid Age wasn't just caused by political instability or or economic issues or, or social issues, but actually drought played a much, much bigger role than previously assumed, because that, I think, was the driving force behind the abandonment of these sites. Okay, so the Nile, which floods every year, or did before they built these dams, that that dried up for a while. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it dried up for a generation or so. Right, and a lot of other scientists have done archaeological and and scientific research, collecting core data, collecting pollen data, doing samples in caves, and this event happened called the 4.2K BP event. So this happened about 4,200 years ago. It seems that global events, think of like an ancient global El Nino effect, impacted the annual monsoon rainfall that would fill up the Blue and White Nile basins that caused the Nile to flood every year. And for between 50 and 100 years, the annual flooding became unpredictable, even more unpredictable than usual. And so Egypt was impacted, I think, by a series of long-term droughts. So this really resonates with the uh, situation we have today, doesn't it? I think it parallels it almost perfectly. And I think there's a lot that we can get out of looking at what happened to Egypt during this time. So you had a ruler named Pepi II who ruled for over 90 years, very powerful, but the power and the money started to trickle to the provinces. And then when the series of droughts happened, Egypt was in chaos for a while, but because the money and the resources had shifted to more regional areas, all of a sudden in the Middle Kingdom around 1,800 years ago, you have this explosion of creativity and you have what essentially became Egypt's great Renaissance period. So this great period of art and architecture and literature. So I think it says a lot about income inequality, ironically. And the, the fact is, if we invest in areas across the country and indeed the world where you have great pools of talent that don't necessarily have access to opportunity, I think we've got a, a shot at potentially beating this huge global challenge we have. So interesting that uh, satellite imagery might have this as a consequence, an insight into how society should be structured. And it's just one example. You know, I, I'll give you the example of my colleagues, Francisco Estrada Belli and Marcelo Canudo of Tulane University. And they, with something called the Panicum Initiative, have mapped over 2,000 square kilometers of dense rainforest in Guatemala. And they've been able to find tens of thousands of previously undiscovered Maya sites. And what they're hoping to do over the next 10 to 15 years is get a complete map of the entire 
Maya world. And like that, to me, that's just mind blowing that we can have a total map of an entire civilization that, of course, still exists today with, with the Maya people. And the idea, like how much information are we going to be able to get out of population numbers and what caused the Maya to grow and collapse? Because for the first time, we have an almost complete picture of what that world looked like. So I think you will continue to see these amazing headlines over the next few years. Uh, what about the extension of these techniques to other planets? I mean, if you were going to find the remains of an ancient civilization on Mars, not that I think there ever was one, but there are people who do, maybe the satellite imagery we get from the Mars orbiters uh, could be analyzed in more or less the same way as you're doing this. And, and people write books about pyramids on Mars and faces on Mars and so forth and so on. What's your reaction to that? Okay, so I, this is something I, I actually spend a lot of time speaking about to any audience that will listen. I think a big mistake that you know, SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, and indeed NASA is making right now, um, you need a BS to be an astronaut. They will not hire an anthropologist or archaeologist. I only have a BA. And I think we need to start planning now for that period of time, whether it's in 20 years or 50 years or 100 years, when we do start mapping these exoplanets that have a high degree of likelihood of being more Earth-like. And there's only one branch of the sciences, social sciences, that is trained in how to reconstruct civilizations from nothing. And yes, while on other planets there could be octopi-like creatures that have built structures that we have no idea what they are, but I, I think archaeologists are much, much better trained to reconstruct these worlds than anyone else. And the technology and techniques that my team and I use and that other colleagues use, I think you're totally right. It has multiple applications for mapping potential civilizations or indeed the remains of civilizations on other worlds. And while there certainly are not pyramids or faces in Mars, I think there could be features on other planets. And I would love the opportunity to try to map them. Sarah Parkak, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah Parkak is a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and she's the author of Archaeology from Space, How the Future Shapes the Past. All right, so looking at the big picture here, uh, you know, the fact that there was this decline in ancient Egypt, that seems to have been due to external causes. The fact that the, the reliable flooding of the Nile was not so reliable anymore, and they were able to deduce that by a combination of on-the-ground activities, but also satellite imagery. But then also this idea that she was able to deduce that there had been this reallocation of resources as the old kingdom was collapsing, and that perhaps because this, this money and this investment had gone to regional areas, that there was a little bit more stability. And there was also the benefit of a renaissance in art and architecture. And, well, you know, perhaps somewhere in there is a lesson for us as we face climate change. Certainly, she thinks so. Well, it sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, rather than having all the money concentrated in the pharaohs and the nobles and so forth, give it to the people because they're not stupid and they might find better ways to use it. Apparently, they did. What did Dr. Parkak say? That less than 1% of the archaeological sites in Egypt have been unearthed? 
I mean, that means we don't yet have a full story about ancient Egypt. But with these new tools and return visits, we are unearthing new details. So keeping that in mind, let's make another return visit to Easter Island and why the inhabitants stopped making those giant statues. Now, if you remember, visitors to the island in the 18th century suggested that a waste of natural resources and infighting led to population collapse. But what does modern science say? Everything we thought about Easter Island's collapse is wrong. And archaeologist takes a new look at old terrain. It's headed for trouble on Big Picture Science. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. For as long as he can remember, Binghamton University professor Carl Lippo has been fascinated by strange constructions. I'm an archaeologist, and one of the things I'm particularly interested in is understanding why people do the crazy things that they do. For example, the statues on Easter Island, uh, the pyramids of Egypt, or the earthen mounds of Wisconsin. Because, he asked, why would anyone take the time to do art projects when they would probably be better off addressing the immediate and essential tasks of survival, you know, finding food, building shelters, or in the case of Easter Island, lowering cortisol levels by vegging out on the beach. I mean, why suffer the unnecessary sweat of heavy lifting or stone cutting? And Dr. Lippo was especially perplexed by the enormous statues on Easter Island. When he first saw them, he thought they were impressive, but Come on, the stone heads were also weird. And even more puzzling is how many there were, nearly a thousand on the island. He began a quest to understand what motivated the islanders to make the Moai and why they stopped. What he discovered would ultimately lead to the unraveling of the widely accepted collapse theory that's associated with the island, which we heard earlier in the show. Much of that theory comes from the work of anthropologist Jared Diamond. Basically, through the actions of making statues, as well as the physical material needed for the rollers, led people to chop trees down, ultimately leading to the loss of the forest itself. And the loss of the forest was an ecological disaster. And so Diamond forwards this hypothesis that the society, which got so wrapped up in the sort of the mania of creating statues, resulted in what he calls ecocide. So now we're going to learn what Carl Lippo thinks really happened on Easter Island, based on over two decades of his archaeological study. And we just have to start with a nifty bit of research. I mean, if you were going to move a monolith from a quarry across miles of volcanic terrain, would you do so by building some sort of wooden transport? And remember, no wheels. 
Well, Dr. Lippo had a different idea. My colleague Terry Hunt and I were looking at the evidence that could tell us about how these statues were moved. Our conclusion from the archaeological record is that these were moved in a standing position. And we were challenged to actually demonstrate that physically this is really possible. So to do that, we built an exact replica down to the millimeter of a statue, a five-ton replica that by itself would be really immovable with sort of simple pushing and shoving. You know, when we think about moving a refrigerator across your kitchen, the last thing you would do is lay it on its back, put it on some rollers, and then roll it across the kitchen, then tilt it back up. That one person can move several hundred tons of refrigerator simply by kind of rocking it back and forth. The islanders really took that idea and went sort of an order of magnitude greater, that they actually changed the shape of the statues so that as they rocked it, it could take this wobbly step forward. The physics itself was embedded in the statues that made it walkable. We took this five-ton statue with just 12, I think the lowest number was about 12 people, and moved it about 100 meters in 30 minutes using just three ropes. The fact that the statues were walked into place is just one of the many pieces of evidence Dr. Lippo and his team have discovered that have dealt blow after blow to the theory that Easter Islanders drove themselves into ecological collapse. The events on Easter Island are famous, and many people are aware of them, yet few people really know the true story of what happened there because the story has taken greater importance than actually the data that drives that story. In my research, we've really spent a lot of time looking at the archaeological record to try to figure out what actually happened, and the answer is actually quite surprising. Well, Carl, to what extent is the collapse theory drawn on the timeline that was created by three sets of visits to the island in the 18th century, the Dutch in 1722, the Spanish in 1770, and then uh, James Cook in 1774? And is it these eyewitness accounts and these population estimates that have been the backbone of this collapse theory? Absolutely. This is the root of that. That's Europeans, particularly Cook, who, who come to the island and they see something something bad has happened. They realize that the island doesn't seem healthy, that the populations are small in number, and that the environment is you know really the opposite of what you'd think would be necessary to support the statues and the other things that they're seeing. Uh, and that sort of central observation has really led to this, this sort of baked-in story that there was some catastrophe on the island uh, that happened during prehistory. So let's get to your reassessment of what happened on Easter Island. And one of the big bits of evidence that are key to the collapse theory is the suggestion of a population collapse, that the we've heard earlier in the show that the populations might have been as large as 10 or even 12,000 people, and then they dropped to a few hundred. But you were not able to find evidence of this collapse. So we wanted to see, was there evidence of this large population, and then did it did it decline? And to do that, we, we do aerial survey and, and, and landscape survey to look at how are the artifacts distributed across the landscape? Uh, what's the density of them? Where, where, where are houses? Where are ovens? Where are the things that you know would represent domestic activity, which would be representative of sort of population size overall? And what we found, instead of large, dense villages, we found was really a dispersed settlement system in which families were living in very low-density fashion all across the landscape leading us to really see that the fact that there was never that many people on the island, that the archaeologic record never showed the kind of density that you would expect to find with 30,000 people, that was really more on the order of what Europeans saw uh, at, at the point of contact in the orders of several thousand people. You know, the evidence never showed this huge population, and thus there never was a decline, at least in prehistory. 
Let's talk a bit about how your opinion shifted from Easter Island as a cautionary tale to a success story. You say that this is really a story of persistence. Yeah, to live on this island over a long period of time, you have to figure out solutions that don't rely you on going to the other island to get the thing that you need. If you run out of something, um, you're you're out of it. <laughs> That's it. Uh, you're stuck. What we realize is that statues, when you look at statues, obviously represent an incredible investment of energy and, and activity of the people. And the Ahu themselves, the platforms, are massive structures that t- must have taken you know lots of time out of people's lives to make that happen. And you can interpret it in the traditional collapse sense that this was a result of crazy behavior, maybe a king or some kind of leader forcing people to do stuff for their own benefit. But you can also flip it around the other way to think that if on this island, when you are so isolated and you have no other choices, that what you would do would really matter. Your choices must have been very carefully thought out or at least had to have made sense at some level for you to do that and continue to do that over a long period of time, which is nearly 500 years. And what we realize is that the act of making statues was really key to bringing communities together in a way that led to this to survival. There's sort of two parts of this. One is that each group that's doing this, the members of those groups, those people that participate in this, are clearly identifying themselves as members of those group and thus have access to the resources of the group itself. So there's sort of a membership identity component that provides advantages to those individuals. They know who they can trust and they know who they can rely on because those people have made those investments in those community scale activities. Then there's also a between group uh, competition uh, dimension to this where the strength of the group is reflected in the sort of the investment of the statues themselves. So what we see is that these statues are actually serving as signals that bring communities together, make them stronger, and then allow for between-group competition. We're starting to test that hypothesis by demonstrating that the scale of that investment is associated with the magnitude of the statues. The more resources that a community has, we would expect to see the greater the investment of the statues. And that's exactly what we're finding in our archaeological studies. What else did the statues mean to the inhabitants? How were they part of their belief system? Certainly, Maya were a central part of their belief system in the sense that they, um, you know, they had meaning to the groups, you know, as as a group agents, but also uh, they represented ancestors. And you think about an island like this, where you're again you're isolated and you're you don't know what the future is going to bring. It's actually a relatively uncertain environment with terms of rainfall and drought patterns uh, that you need to to look backwards and say, well. You know, what what led us to the success to where we're at at this point in time? And for Rapa Nui people, the statues represented the ancestors. So do we have a corollary in modern society to that, to remembering and, uh, say, honoring our ancestors in a way that is also key to our success? That's a good question. Uh, sadly, we don't have enough of that. Uh, certainly, we, we often, you know, we, we put monuments up and we... They're, they're symbolic to us, but they don't necessarily mean the same thing. We often don't realize the shoulders of giants upon which we we exist. You know, sort of like we take a statue of a, you know, a, a World War II general and stick it down in the park, but we don't go there on a daily basis. These were actually part of the household activities, sort of the, the center family activities that were part of daily life. And the actions and maintaining and working on the statues and the ahu and all the other things that are around those were part of what people did on, on an everyday basis. That's how central they were. One of the other things you cite is that they made use of very poor soil. And they were a- actually able to take this impoverished, treeless landscape and turn it into a garden. And, and how did they do that? 
Yeah, so one, one of the assumptions as part of the collapse narrative is that the island um, once had a really rich soil uh, filled with trees, and it was once a paradise, an earthly paradise in which people lived, and that you know human action led to its destruction and ultimate degradation of the soils and everything else. What we found is that the actual soils themselves were never particularly productive. In fact, are terrible soils. They've got the productivity of about a brick. If you crumbled up a brick and put it on the ground, it would be a lot like Easter Island soils. So in order to survive on the island, what people did was go to bedrock sources and break off chunks of rock to expose the bedrock and those fragments of rock to the soil and to fresh water to increase the, the nutrients of the soil. So what we find is what's called lithic mulching, basically using rocks as fertilizer and distributing those across the island. And when you look at the island today as a visitor, um, and certainly the Europeans notice this, it looks like this devastated volcanic landscape filled with broken rocks that are hard to walk across, that you kind of stumble across when you try to get from one place to the other. And it looks like a disaster zone but really is an ingeniously productive garden. And that's exactly the landscape that, that people could grow food in by distributing those rocks. And everywhere we, we go with those broken rocks, we find evidence of people growing plants, uh, these, these sweet potato and other kinds of, of, of crops. So it sounds like perhaps in the case of the 18th century and ongoing, we see what we want to see. That's exactly right. That's the challenge. I mean, we, we bring our, our, our preconceptions about what must be true and, and try to account for it with our own sort of common sense. And Europeans certainly brought that. They brought the idea that, well, in order to make all these statues, you must have thousands and thousands of people, armies of people dragging them around. And that's the only way they could have imagined doing it. One of the challenges in archaeology is to strip away our preconceptions and really study the evidence itself to try to figure out what must be true uh, and not what we assume is there. Well, then, Carl, that brings us to the big question, your conclusion as to what actually happened on Easter Island that caused the population to sharply decline and why the society ended. What happened? A couple of things to sort of recognize there. One is Rapa Nui people still live on the island. A lot of people don't know that. They hear the story of collapse and they think, well, the people went extinct and are gone. Uh, and the, the so-called collapse really wasn't something that they did to themselves. It was rather events that happened after Europeans arrived. The introduction of disease was one of them. As Europeans arrived, they bring diseases to which the Rapa Nui people have never been exposed to, causing all kinds of, of death. In addition, uh, slave raiding happened in the 19th century that, that brought thousands of people off the island to be removed from the island to work as uh, domestic uh, workers in South America. Uh, some of them were returned but brought back even additional diseases, leading to really a catastrophe of the island. Just to follow up so that we're clear, when you talk about the European arrival, uh, which Europeans and when? Really, I mean, the Euro first European arrival that we know of is in 1722, the Dutch, and then followed by the, the Spanish and, and the um, the English. But then after that, there's a whole series of other people arriving on the island from the French, uh, the Russians, and then a whole series of whalers and slave raiders that come to the island in the 18th century, in the 19th century, all of which had different kind, different levels of impacts to the island. Uh, first, right, probably right from the get-go when Rogovin arrives, he brings certain diseases and certainly has an impact to the island. The difference of smallpox, uh, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, all of which arrive on the island. And we see that documented in historic accounts where, where captains are saying, don't go to the island. Uh, it's island filled with disease, all of which were brought by Europeans. You said that there are lessons in Easter Island and what happened that contained best practices, that uh, behaviors, a series of behaviors that help a society to persist. Can modern society look at, at Easter Island and, and draw some inspiration and some practical advice? 
Absolutely. I think, you know, Easter Island actually is probably one of the best cases of things we should look at in terms of what we should do versus being, you know, a, a tale of the opposite. These populations were able to come together in, you know, remarkably limited resources that were very unpredictable and, and still survive. And th- those lessons, I think, are going to be critical in our future with climate change. One of the big challenges with climate change is, is not necessarily the change itself, but the uncertainty that comes with the change. And that uncertainty is what we have to deal with. If we don't have food in one place, uh, but food elsewhere, how are we going to best make sure that the food is where it needs to be uh, going forward? And if an Easter Islander were here from the 16th century or earlier to give us advice, what might that advice be? Uh, communities. I mean, the strength of communities is really the resilience that you know provides the resilience for any kind of group. Um, the ability to know you can count on your neighbor uh, in times of shortfall uh, and be able to get, you know, giving resources to your neighbor because you know you can count on them in the future is really what we need because that provides the buffer that allows us to withstand uncertainty and resource through time. I know here in Binghamton uh, in upstate New York, a lot of people live in the community, but we only share things because we happen to live in the same space, not because we share much other kind of tradition. We've lost a lot of that tradition and sort of ancestry uh, because of modern life, where people move around and are highly mobile and end up in communities just because they're jobs that happen to be there. I think those are the kinds of, you know, that Easter Island in that sense really demonstrates what's possible, the extreme uncertainty in which we can live if we can work together to make it happen. Carl Lippo, thank you so much for talking to us about Rapa Nui otherwise known as Easter Island. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Carl Lippo is an archaeologist at Binghamton University. Thank you to the civilizing influences provided by senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. I am executive producer Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the prevalence of planets. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and uh, can tell you that it's not easy to get ahead, unless you're on that island, of course. Also, a big thanks to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science that's called Headed for Trouble. If you want to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, and you will find links there to the guests you heard as well. You may be listening to our radio show, but if you want Pi Pi Side to be available as you walk yourself across an island or just across town, why not subscribe to the Pi Pi Side podcast so that you never miss an episode? You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question.
And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.